The word Waze Goose is a printer's term dating to the, I want to say the 1500s. Yeah. And it's a printer's gathering, usually at the end of the, <clears throat> at the end of, in the fall, typically. And yeah. it marks the transition from when you print by daylight to candlelight. And so oh, when wow. you would print in a print shop, September, October, there's a point where it gets so cold that you have to put you have to put paper pulp or you have to insulate the windows in some way. Okay. And so that cuts down on the amount of light coming in. The days are getting shorter. So they switch to working by candlelight. And um, wow. at that time, at this transition time, they would typically have a party. The, the master printer would have a, a feast for his employees. And I believe Goose was the one of the things they typically served. Oh, but really? it's a really old, I want to say English term. Okay, all right. Where? How's it going? Where have you been, old stranger? Stranger, right? This is uh, this is your old buddy. This is Corey. Corey Loven. That's how you say my last name, Loven. It's not Lovin. It's Loven, right? But uh, call me whatever you like. Just don't call me late for dinner, right? You guys. Uh, this is my podcast. This is a weird beginning. This is uh, this is my podcast. It's called Tangents. It's a graphic design and illustration podcast where I have conversations with professional graphic designers, illustrators, entrepreneurs, uh, musicians, maybe, I don't know, and artists, right? You know, yeah, all of the those creative types, right? This is the beginning, my little monologue here, where I kind of Get, tell you all the ins and outs of what I've been up to. Uh, well, you may know that uh, I haven't done one of these in a while. Gosh, damn it, man. It, it, well, the last, last one was our, our old buddy Jeff Johnson, right? And that was like probably over two months ago now. I think it was in October or something when we did that. Now it's like fucking like, goddamn, it's actually February. It's February 1st today. So, you know, well, uh, yeah, these things happen, man. You know what I mean? What what, what are you going to do? Quit blaming your fucking self. Just uh, nut up or shut up. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I uh, I was talking with my roomie and buddy, Sam Shuna, and uh, sometimes I'll play aggressive video games and I'll just yell that phrase out, and uh, it made me laugh. So, you know, there you go. Nut up or shut up kind of aggressive uh i might delete this but what we're forging ahead fucking forging ahead you guys you know what i mean um there's not much to talk about and that's part of the reason perhaps why i've uh held off on this episode you know what i mean well i haven't held off on it i've been trying to you know, Bill, our, our, our old Bill Moran is on the show today, right, from Hamilton Woodtie Museum, and um, yeah, we have a, a great little talk in the studio at my house, at my house, on the on the new dining room table, yeah, right, but um, it, it's always funny because anytime uh, I record, I, you know, I'm getting more into like audio editing and stuff. And if you guys didn't know this, I do all the editing of all of the, the podcasts here on tangents, right? One man army, right? You know, I'm the hoster and the, that's not a word, but the host and the interviewer and the conversationer and, uh, 
you know, the coffee drinker, right? And the and the editor and the uploader and whatever the hoot to do, whatever you want to fucking call it. But uh, uh, anyways, I I do all the editing of these episodes. That's part of the reason why they take so long, right? And um, well, I I kind of uh, it, it, it's funny because anytime like loud things will happen when I'm recording uh with like a guest right uh I'll, I'll get kind of nervous you know what i mean and i'll kind of i'll try and be present and obviously in the conversation right but uh when bill and i were recording in the beginning uh there's like a fucking jackhammer outside my window you know what i mean it, it's not outside my window it's like it's like fucking three blocks away and uh and it's just pounding into the ground literally for the last month or they're installing like a new condo right off in minneapolis here right off like fucking lindale and 26 or something i don't know it's around there so just crazy right man so there's all this noise jamming jackhammers and bullshit you know what i mean you know and i'm like trying to be in the moment listening to bill in this beginning of this episode and then you know and then i'm like uh-huh uh-huh. And, then, and then I'm like, oh God, am I going to be able to, you know, is this going to be picking it up on the mics and shit? Luckily, you know, re-listening to it, it, it doesn't pick it up too much unless you have like really nice headphones or something like that. You, you might be able to hear some shit, but hopefully you don't, you know, maybe listen on shitty earbuds. Yeah. <laughs> oh God damn it, man. All right. Well, uh, let Let's just get on. Let's just get on with it. Pull the fucking band-aid. Okay, you guys, uh, our, our guest, our buddy, Bill Moran, again, of Hamilton Woodtime Museum, man, is here today. I have a chat with him. Uh, he's a good buddy. He's a good friend. And um, we talk about a lot of great things, graphic design, letterpress, woodtype, you know, teaching. Yeah, of course, the Hamilton Woodtie Museum in Wisconsin, right? We talk a lot about that, right? And and field notes. There's a little bit of field notes in there. We talk a little bit about field notes and Blink Publishing and Waze Goose, you know, as you heard in the teaser there. And Hat Showprint and Studio on Fire. And and then I'm already seeing too much, man. So let's uh, let's go to the studio. That little pen you got it's a it's my spy pen is, is that what it's called no uh, i just I, I like keeping a pen in my pocket mm-hmm. but i wanted to have one small enough that i couldn't feel it <laughs> in my pocket you know so anyway that's why that's why i have it it does the job i also like those space pens from uh what are the space pens? Where you the space flip them up and down? The ones that uh, they have a I, I know the field notes sell floats. them. It's beautiful silver capsule shape, quite small. And then you take the cap off of it, and it forms half of the pen. And it's just a really beautifully engineered pen. Field really? Notes sells them at their in their uh, online oh, store. Shit. I don't know who else sells them, but they're Jeez. they're pretty slick. But yeah, smaller is better. Where it makes my hands look bigger. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. Well, thanks for hanging out, dude. 
Yeah, what a treat. I've been a big fan of your work and your blog forever, and I'm just thrilled to... The blog, the podcast. Podcast, excuse me. Well, it's pretty much... It could. It's an audio blog, yeah, I suppose. that's true. That's Blogs true. aren't really as popular nowadays. Have you I noticed know, that? They're kind of like... how that's gone down. Yeah, it is. So t- much of it is now social, I feel like. Most people, you can, you know... People don't really submit to like design and art illustration blogs anymore, I feel like. Well, and what's interesting is um, depending on how they're written, uh, at least one of the things that I'm lucky enough to curate is uh, more journalistic ones where you're having people blog on a particular topic, whereas blogs, I Ah. think when they were born, it was more of a op-ed piece or now it's it's for us it's sure thinking about the content of this is an article we commissioned someone to write and the most logical place to put it was on our blog page right so yeah you're thinking about the the content of it but i think you're right i think people are more inclined to mm-hmm. i can do my job and listen to a blog post or a podcast at yeah, whereas right. having to read a blog, you can't do, it's hard to do multiple things right. when you're reading it. So a colleague of yeah. mine is very big into um, listening to podcasts while she works. And I think that's yeah. pretty slick. And I think so, a lot of people are. Yeah, Graphic designers sure. in particular, yeah, too. That's true. And, because, yeah, you're able to like work, listen while you work. Right. Yeah. Right. That, it, and it's a nice format, too, I feel like. Getting back to radios and stuff. Yeah. Which right. who would have thought, right? Isn't that fucking weird, man? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, portability, you know? I mean, it's... I can listen to something... I can listen to something while I work. So, anyway. Yeah, man. We got a lovely snow out there this morning. The flakes were giant when they... Uh, at around 7 o'clock this morning, coming down. It was like cotton balls. It was very pretty. <laughs> I was uh, very pleased because I'm a big fan of winter. So you are. Oh yeah, I love winter. We go winter camping all the time. What? Where yeah. do you, what do you stay in? Like a tent? Or you yeah, you camper? stay in a tent. You, you stay in a tent. Yeah, Isn't right. that freezing, dude? Yeah, it's really cold, but you have a good sleeping bag. So it's it's okay. and, and a lot okay. of very fatty food. So my daughter, my well, oldest daughter, and yeah. college buddy of mine, and his daughter, who's the same age, and my brother-in-law have been going to the Canadian border for about. I don't know, 1986, 87, we started going up there. Is this near like Ely? Yeah, well, actually, Voyager National Park, a little bit north and west of there. So, yeah, beautiful area. Go out for three or four nights and whoop it up and freeze your butt off and tromp around in the snow and ski and snowshoe and eat fatty food and maybe drink some whiskey (laughs) once in a while. But, yeah, it's great fun. It's great fun. And now the kids come along, so... And now you can go. That's again, true. I make her snowing. pull the sled, you know. No. She's Anyway, I digress. Well, how did you get into how did you get into design, man? Graphic design um, and letterpress printing and wood type? Um, did you, did you study a, somewhere? Or? Yeah, I was at, graduated from UW Stout. Oh, you went to Stout? Back in 1986. Oh, yeah. Wow. Graduated from there, moved to the Twin Cities. Yeah. That year married my college sweetheart and 30 years later we're still whooping it up over there in St. Paul but um, so I studied design at Stout but my dad and my grandfather and my brother all ran the family print shop and so I got exposed to typography really early 12 
13 years old, they would let us play on the printing presses, not the big dangerous ones. But yeah. my, my dad, when he had the shop, he had this great tabletop proofing press and you could set up type and make any anything you wanted, you know, greeting Jeez. cards or or uh, business cards or whatever. And and then yeah. I got hired. All of my I have seven brothers and three sisters, and yeah. the the siblings were expected to take their turn working at the print shop. And wow. um, I couldn't be trusted to run the offset press, but I could do letterpress. And so I started that when I was yeah 14, 15 years old, 1975, 76. I'm old. So what, where was the shop? Green Bay. That's where I grew up. And what was the shop called? Moran's it... Quality Printing. No way. Yeah, I found it in 1938 and Is it still is it still around? Is no, still my there? brother, my brother took it into its third generation and then closed it down, I want to say in 2001. But then okay. I acquired all of the old letterpress equipment, the wood type and the lead type and the presses and a lot no of that. No way equipment spacing material documentation and so yeah it was so great to be able to carry that on i shipped it all over Damn. here from green bay and wow started making graphic making letterpress part of the graphic design offerings that i was doing for people so i started yeah. blink blink publishing in 1996 and i was doing corporate work identity and that kind of stuff but the letterpress i would i would always kind of say well and if you want a menu for your restaurant redo, we can let a press print the menus for you or whatever, you know, just being able to bring that analog technology into it was really nice. And so wow. kind of came back to letterpress and, and old time type. Um, yeah, 1996, 97. And then Damn. it kind of took off. The design world started paying attention to letterpress again. And then I got associated oh. with the Hamilton wood type museum over in, in Wisconsin over in two rivers. And so, um, yeah, the analog and digital is something that's always kind of been, been there in front of me. And I love being able to use the Adobe creative suite for the things it's good at, but I also yeah. like, you know, take some of the printmaking I did in college and be able to apply some of those tricks oh, and, yeah. and tips from that you only get by doing it for a long time yeah. into into new work. So that crossing the wires is something that's really interesting to me. How, yeah, I, I would assume that you growing up at a young age, you were introduced to letterpress and type and wood type. Yeah, my dad also had a graphic design degree. They called it oh, commercial really? art back then. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, graduated right. from the Leighton School of Art, where interestingly, he met my mother, so my dad and my mom were going to college for the same things that my wife and I were going no to college. Way. Yep, and we what? sure enough it's meet an at college, <laughs> go off, go off, and get married. But they had God. eleven kids, and I only had two. So <laughs> eleven, yeah. Statistically, I could just I couldn't keep up, man. So you that's, have, that's you a have lot. ten like, siblings. I have ten siblings, yeah. Seven brothers and three sisters, and it's oh pretty cool. Gosh. So having uh, your dad do graphic design illustration mm -hmm. he's a really good pen and ink illustrator and uh, your dad is. did that well into his retirement and okay. um but then he also ran the print shop and so he kind of inherited the print shop from yeah from his father yeah did that as you know kind of a money-making thing but he would offer his right. his printing clients graphic design services as well so Jeez. yeah we were exposed to it very early on hand lettering 
I remember oh, watching man. him hand letter and and do drawings, and it would we would just start laughing because you couldn't watching the things come out of his hand. He would he could draw a bird out, you know, he could sketch something, and we just I just remember laughing because like how did you do that? That you made something out of nothing, out of thin air, your brain right. in your hand, and suddenly right. there was this drawing, and then he would do illustrations Jeez. on clothing for us. So there was an especially sought after beetle sweatshirt that he did the the four heads of the beetles on oh. <laughs> circa 1969 and yeah a lot of the siblings wore that sweatshirt you know because it was a one-of-a-kind thing with this penning drawing of john paul george and ringo on it <laughs> and so we would ask him to do drawings on our clothing sometimes but then it was also yeah. encouraged pretty heavily not, not, hey, you should go to school for design. I was going to be an industrial arts teacher when I started college. And then mm. <clears throat> somebody pointed out, you know, they have a graphic design major over here. And it's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. I know something about that. And so I found my way back into it. I thought about being a ceramics major for a while. Really? And then it was like, no, graphic design, that makes a ton of sense. So, yeah, 30 years later, 33 years later, and still, still doing it, poking away at it. Great. Yeah, it's great fun. It's great fun to be standing in front of machinery that your grandfather was standing in front of, you know? How, yeah, go, going to the Hamilton Woodtie Museum. Yeah, for uh, sure. How did you get introduced to that? Does your brother Jim, is your brother Jim? My right? brother's Jim. Okay. He and I <clears throat> started volunteering for them. At around the same time, they opened in 1999, and we kind of discovered Gosh. them somewhat separately, 2001, 2002. Oh. My dad also learned about them, and he wanted to donate some equipment to the museum, and my brother donated stuff. And yeah. I, working as a graphic designer here in the Twin Cities, walked into this museum in 2002, and I was just blown away at how beautiful the collection was and how gorgeous the typography was and so gosh a local a local writer and pr person heather west just a dear friend of mine she um she encouraged me to do that we wanted to do a story for how magazine and so we did a, oh. a font project and heather did a great write-up on it and yeah that sort of started bringing some really good notoriety to the museum uh professor out of indiana dennis ishiyama he did these beautiful wood type abstract collages and he uh, got some attention from mohawk paper and so the mills oh started gosh. paying attention and other people yeah. started paying attention and then then i Man. wrote and published a book about them in 2004 and uh, just a little monograph but it mm. was a nice history of the museum and samples of work being done there by yeah. 2004 and then in 2000 later in 2004 they hired their first employee and he was the museum director one employee and they were still struggling to get people in the door um at hamilton at hamilton yeah because okay. people were still figuring it out and um i was still volunteering for them whenever i could and um, they got these beautiful blocks donated in 2005 from a printing company in Chicago, Globe Printing, mm. related by name to Globe Printing of Baltimore. Mm. Um, but Globe Printing in Chicago did show business printing. And, 
and they had all these great circus posters and entertainment posters, you know, sure. engravings of Miles Davis and Lena Horne and all these wonderful entertainers. And so they yeah. donated all these blocks to the museum in 2005. And we all just went nuts because suddenly your cute little printing museum dealing with wood type now has this collection of American advertising art that was Jeez. that was really great. And so yeah. we started printing this stuff and selling it. <clears throat> And then uh, we got hired in 2009. Greg, Greg Corrigan, the previous director, stepped down. My brother got hired as museum director. I got hired as artistic director. Okay. And uh, we were able to really kind of help them take off in terms of an awareness standpoint. There was a nice documentary film made about the museum called Typeface. Oh, sure. And that was a great the the filmmaker uh, was uh, Justine Nagan of Cartemquin Films. They did Hoop Dreams, yeah, right. So they did an hour long documentary about the museum and how this f kind of manufacturing was fading, etc. And it was yeah. a really good call to arms, and it got picked up by PBS nationwide. And so as no as the film is making the sort of the circuit and building awareness and creating this sense of urgency of gee, we got to save this. My brother and I get hired. And then <clears throat> 2011, Target comes along. Actually, I reached out to Target. A good friend of mine um, yeah. is in uh, uh, trends and forecasting in, in clothing and accessories. And I said, ah. Maureen, I'd really like to, um, we'd really like some help on how to get this paperwork out, you know, yeah. these posters and stuff we've been doing. And Maureen, God bless her, she said, this should be clothing. So that oh. we have very we get really moved quickly through the the process. We were very very lucky in that Maureen uh, advocated Maureen McGuire advocated really hard with her her higher ups to get this wow. thing launched, and it happened. Yeah. And every piece of clothing had a, a Hamilton hang tag on it, explaining the source of the imagery and the provenance yeah. of the collection. And right. it was just a great moment for the museum two years after we got hired to get that kind of design exposure so uh Stephen heller wow. had been um yeah doing nice write-ups about us and they they reached out to Stephen, and he did the lead article for i think atlantic magazine and then oh. he subsequently has been writing a lot about the museum he spoke at ways goose two years ago so the my Jeez. my design my graphic design practice uh, gave way to, instead of having Hamilton as a client they became my employer of sorts. But I've always done sure. that from from the Twin Cities. I live and work here, yeah, and teach here. But I work for the museum almost full time. So it's a great gig. I do fundraising. I do website development. I'm doing marketing and because i have all the presses i can also design and and print a lot of the merchandise too yeah. so um yeah it's been great to be able to draw the resources of the twin cities and put them to work for this little museum over in eastern wisconsin because you know Jeez. just by the virtue of being in the twin cities you're exposed to a design audience that's so big and so robust yeah and you know that was the reason that you know having having being lucky enough to know somebody who worked at Target, talking to the right people at the right time. If I had been staged, if I had been living in right. Two Rivers, it'd be harder to make those kinds of connections. So, it's proven wow. to be a really advantageous thing to be in a design community, promoting them, talking about them, and 
How did you how did you go about, Phil? I I know your friend Maureen worked there and pushed for it. Uh, Well, in regards to the designs of the actual like apparel and shirts, Mm -hmm. who printed them? Did you guys just submit the designs and they had vendors that would actually screen print or digitally print on the apparel? It was all their vendors. So when they roll out a back to school school clothing line, yeah. You know, it's like 10 million pieces of clothing. It's 85 different pieces, right? There was a handbag and there were lots of skews. And so pajama bottoms and t-shirts and baseball caps. And And did did Target think of this? And they were like, okay, we need 86 or whatever different designs for these. Yeah, I mean, we we worked with a really good intellectual property lawyer here. Okay. uh, uh, and, And he helped walk us through the licensing agreement and okay but then target also you know they know what they're so good at licensing they're so good at collaborating with mm. other people sure and we just had this stunning experience with them i know that that, that sometimes it, they, a company the size of target can be difficult to it's a behemoth you know i mean yeah. it's a big right. place right we just had a great experience with them because they they recognized what what was worth pursuing. They were excited about uh, how to bring the collection to light. And in some cases, my brother and I may have designed some things that Target picked up the essence of, the collage style of collage work we did, but they had a crew of designers who handled uh, most of that. And their designers were like off the charts wonderful because... If you're a letterpress printer, you're thinking about the constraints of paper and and ink on a printing press. Sure. And they wanted to have a letterpress aesthetic to these projects, but what they were able to tease out of textile printing techniques brought another whole level of design consideration to to what what this clothing looked like. And they just did an incredible job. So what were some of the designs? It was largely a lot of like wood type and stuff. There was some beautiful automotive collages that we did. And then there was a big... There was a big group of things, sort of this drum majorette image that was really wonderful, some rodeo imagery. Sure. So it was boys and girls and teenagers. Okay. You know, because it was back to school, they were going for, okay. you know, uh, it, well, well, cool vintage vintage varsity that was the that was sort of the package (laughs) they came up with so that that could be everything from race cars to sort of the the typography of the college football jersey think about that aesthetic of mid-century graphics and the provenance of where these images came from a lot of this was started as stuff that was printed in the 1940s 50s and 60s and so they wisely tried to carry that into the 21st century while celebrating what was good to look at and also doing beautiful collage work putting things together that had never been put together before and so and did, that, you, did you guys do that or did target do that or they who? did so they drew inspiration i think it's fair to say from the collage work we were doing okay and totally. so mashups if you will right yeah. but then they took and ran with the ball so they okay. brought us in to do a series of letterpress demos and talk about what was likely and yeah. how colors could be put together and so their designers were plugged in really closely to the process and the aesthetic we were using and then it sure. was their job to bring that forward so man um yeah it was just it was just they really gave a ton of respect to the aesthetic of it and Man. and again uh maureen mcguire and 
Nadine Stoklensky um, and her team, just really yeah. brilliant people over there who treated us with so, and they treated the re- collection with so much respect. So anyway. And that was in like the, 2011? 2011. And Jeez. then we did a collaboration with Man. Field Notes in 2014. They did a limited what edition. What was that? Booklet. It was, um, it was a series of collages. I think they do their quarterly limited edition ones they'll have their regular oh, sure. line of book booklets but then they do a collector's edition if you will okay. and so they came in uh and with aaron draplin uh draplin uh sort of helping guide the aesthetic of it and they drew okay. from the blocks as well and did these beautiful collages that that uh working Man. with my brother but this time my brother did all the printing with so he jim worked with Marin. jim did all of the printing on the heidelberg that was in the oh, museum wow. so every cover was hand printed it was something like seventy thousand impressions that he had to do for for these these what was it? Twenty five thousand booklets. Yeah, it was a massive project. But, field notes, memo books. Right, That's and it insane. and but what it did was it it brought it brought it 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 shared the museum's uh, imagery with yeah. the graphic design audience at a really high level because you weren't just seeing something that had been yeah. emulated and then screen printed or or, or on a piece of clothing you were yeah. holding something in your hand that was printed in the museum from museum artwork so that was cool that was a great thing and i think that was Man. maybe 2014 but i'll yeah. double check so no i remember those were great i have i i had a book i bought them at a uh, big table nice big table studio but we can go back to that but yeah. what is um what is Waze Goose? We mentioned it briefly. Yeah, we Waze Goose is our annual conference. It's uh, every at, at Hamilton. At Hamilton, and and we should mention Hamilton Woodside Museum is based in well Two Rivers, Wisconsin, yeah. right? Yeah. Is that is that like central or is it eastern Wisconsin? Eastern Wisconsin, eastern just Wisconsin. Uh, just about forty miles southeast of where uh, of Green Bay, where I grew up, and so it's sure. right on Lake Michigan. You walk out the front door of the museum, you're looking at Lake Michigan. No it's way. a beautiful view, and it's sandy beaches and really, yeah, it's just a great location and um, wow. a lot of traffic from like Chicago going up to Door County and people yeah. circumnavigating the Lake Michigan or the Great Lakes. We get a lot of traffic from people just driving by. So wow. anyway, yeah, the museum's over there. It's about a five hour drive from here. So I'm from over Minneapolis. There. Yeah. Okay. I'm over there a couple times a month, but okay. it's great. Um, but uh, Waze Goose. Waze Goose. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, we did a, we started a conference in 2009, the year we got hired Huh. We decided we should have a a, a gathering. Got of hired some at kind. Target, or what? no, no, got the museum. At... When my brother and I got oh, hired at, got... by the okay. museum in two thousand nine, yeah, yeah. we one of the, one of the first things we did was <clears throat> we uh, decided that we should have a little conference at the museum. Yeah, and Matthew Carter had designed a font for the museum back in two thousand five or Jeez. thereabouts, and so wow. he had never designed. He had designed for every media except wood. And so a friend of ours, a board member of the museum, urged him in 2005 and said, you should really think about designing a font for this museum. And so he did this beautiful two-color Latin typeface. It's got nice wedge-pointed serifs and just a stunning font. Yeah. So they had tried to cut new templates and cut new wood type, but the precision of the fit 
for a chromatic font, that is, you've got a background of red, let's say, and then you impress a black letter inside of it. Sure. And it has to fit nearly perfectly. There wasn't anybody working at the museum at that time who could get no. that level of precision. They had a lot of volunteers and a lot of people who cut wood type. Yeah. But uh, the the project kind of floundered because there was the the guy who was the director. They cut him to half time, and so oh. so I called up Matthew Carter and I said, "Hey, we wanna uh, want you to come out and give a presentation on this font. We're gonna unveil it. We're gonna we're gonna print with it for the first time." Yeah. And he said, sure, I'd be happy to come out. And then, and then I said, uh, can we have some people, you know, watch? Can we, you know, you want to talk to an audience? Sure, that'd be fine. And then I said, well, what if we have a couple of other presentations in addition to yours? Oh, that's wonderful. Great. And that's how the first Waze Goose was born. So the Waze no Goose, way. the word Waze Goose is a printer's term dating to the... I want to say the 1500s yeah. and it's a printer's gathering usually at the end of the <clears throat> at the end of in the fall typically and yeah. it marks the transition from when you print by daylight to candlelight and so oh, when wow. you would print in a print shop september october there's a point where it gets so cold that you have to put you have to put paper pulp or you have to insulate the windows in some way. Okay. And so that cuts down on the amount of light coming in. The days are getting shorter. So they switched to working by candlelight. And um, wow. at that time, at this transition time, they would typically have a party. The, the master printer would have a, a feast for his employees. And I believe Goose was the one of the things they typically served. Oh, really? But it's a really old, I want to say English term. I could be wrong. I'll sure. check on that. But so... Waze Goose. Waze Goose. Yeah, so a lot of different term. printing organizations wow. around the U.S., they have way, their own Waze Gooses, Waze Geese. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we thought as a nod to the tradition of printing, we were going to have our own Waze Goose. So we don't right. own the name. We're not exclusive users of it. But um, we have this this conference every year, and it's turned into a design conference, right? So it's yeah. typography, and it's the crossroads of letterpress printers, type designers, graphic designers, hand lettering, people interested in hand lettering. Um, and it's a really great mix of different disciplines. And so the, wow. the, the letterpress printers may not know who Matthew Carter is, sure. and the graphic designers may not know who Gaylord Shanelik is, or think about all these different great practitioners who we've showcased over the years. Yeah. You're introducing these craftspeople to people of different disciplines because it has a relevancy, we think, for... Totally. You know, you get inspired by a really good wood engraver, even though you're a graphic designer or a screen printer, let's say. So yeah. you may be a graphic designer and you, you know, have a chance to learn about you were trying to introduce people to people yeah. they may not have heard about otherwise. And it's a great cross-pollination yeah. of disciplines and interests. And yeah. so that has grown like crazy. The first year, I think we had 65 attendees. And yeah. it's grown every year. We're now at about 250 attendees. So, wow. yeah. It's and is it usually like a few days or one day? Yeah, it's thing? a long weekend. So we do okay. workshops on a Saturday, Friday, I should say. And then the conference starts Friday night through Sunday. So... And, and it's all in the museum. So everything wow. takes place in the museum. It's 80,000 square feet of, of space we've got. And uh, yeah. so we have workshops 
place throughout and then we set up a big auditorium and yeah, it's there, great fun. There have so, been a lot of uh, speakers that you guys have had over the years. Uh, Louise Feely, Stephen Heller, Matthew Carter, of mm-hmm. course, Jessica Hish. Yeah. Uh, and, and it kind of keeps on going. Yeah. How do you guys get these people? Did you just email them or are you just like, hey, yeah, you want to come mean, do this? You or? Meet, you, yeah, it's a combination of out of out of the blue or you meet them at another conference introduce okay. yourself you know yeah and just say and and i think because hamilton's ways gooses it's a it's a really cool and unusual venue the subject yeah. matter is is different than any other conference i mean there's plenty of type conferences and there's really good type conferences but sure. ours again sort of mixes that analog and digital and and it's actually in the space too. Yeah, it's not, that's it's, what's it's in completely a unique. Space. Is, it's not in like yeah, the Hilton. You know? new, yeah, right. <laughs> and and that's the other unique thing is um, because it's two rivers. There's a retreat aspect to it, so you're getting away from sure. a major metropolitan area. If you yeah. if you had enough of people or or presentations for a day, you can just go walk on the beach for an hour, and it's yeah. just beautiful scenery. And yeah. yeah, so we feel like we've got a nice little niche carved out in terms of this great little conference and we're thinking about doing we offer classes year-round printmaking letterpress classes etc but um we're thinking about doing more programming where we'll have a chance to get maybe a smaller group in but something a little more sure intensive so we're always trying to figure out how to get more people in the building and but but yeah, you call people on the phone and they start talking to each other. And I think it was um, it was Steve Heller told Gail Anderson she should come. And I think oh man, um, it, uh, I think it was also m- maybe it was Louise Feely who told Jessica Hish she should come. Sure, and so you. You get that, you know, starting with Matthew Carter, right? What a great, what a pleasure. Yeah, doesn't he live in, isn't he? He's in Boston. Oh, he's in Boston. Okay, he's from like UK or somewhere, I think. The other person who's been, (laughs) yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) So He's British by birth, but he's, yeah, lives lives in and around Boston. The other person who really uh, is a huge help for us is Jim Sheradden out of Hatch Showprint in Nashville. Sure. I met so, him once. I saw him yeah, give a lecture not yeah. too long ago. And I and I never I never knew him. But yeah, who is Jim Sheradden? Sheradden yeah, is Jim, how it's right. Jim Sheradden started working at Hatch Showprint down in Nashville in yeah. 1984, I believe. And the shop was okay. founded in 1879. But wow. they what they had at Hatch was this music and entertainment connection so johnny cash posters bessie smith hank williams hank snow yeah uh, 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 kitty wells think of all these great country and western singers hatch did the posters for those guys and they became recognized as this american music cultural treasure if you will and so they got bought by the country music foundation country music hall of fame First, wow. it was Gaylord Entertainment that runs the Grand Old Opry, and then, then I think Gaylord donated it or sold it to the Country Music Foundation, and they have become sort of recognized as this time capsule of some of the best 
advertising and printing and in yeah. musician and music history, right? right? But with a focus on Nashville country music, bluegrass, etc. Right. So Jim gets hired there in 1984, and he spoke here at the Walker in 1999, and that's where he and I met. And so two years really? later, maybe three years later, when I find out about Hamilton, uh, we just got each other's phone numbers. I would call him on the phone. I'd say, Jim, you have to come up and see this place, Hamilton. It's it's a really amazing thing. And he became a huge cheerleader for us. He he wow. uh, did the foreword for the book that I wrote in 2004. And what was, what was the name of the book? A History and Headlines. Hamilton would type A History and Headlines. Oh, so wow. Just That's great. Just a little... 32 page magazine essentially but yeah it's he agreed to do the foreword for it and so wow. when you have a guy like that singing your praises that's a that's a good thing so and yeah then jim did the same thing he turned around and started telling other people about us and then we wow. got connected with a european a couple of european printing museums because i let a study abroad trip i teach at the u part-time and I led sure. a study abroad trip to these printing museums in Italy and Spain and Germany. And we got connected to those museums, too. So now we've got this international collaboration going on with these printing museums around the world. And Jeez. we show Hamilton stuff there and, and vice versa. Yeah. They, they show their stuff at, at Hamilton. So it's this great cross-pollination that's taken place with just by word of mouth honestly uh yeah and it's been it's been really great Corey, because um it's been organic and i think that's what people really respond to is totally is is it gets this grassroots approach to it something to be protected and preserved and yeah oddly the huh. last part of it is that we had to move in 2013 we were in this beautiful old hamilton original hamilton manufacturing building on oh, really? jefferson street and in two rivers and the company that owned the building hamilton no longer owned it they had been bought and sold a couple times but we were there rent free from 1999 to 2013 and then suddenly no with way. six months notice we had to move to a new building. And uh, my brother and Jeez. the assistant director, Stephanie Carpenter, they just led an army of volunteers to help get everything pulled together, packed up, and we found a building about 10 blocks away. Wow. So we're in this new location, but that move ended up being a big attention grabber for people, really made people realize that there was something worth preserving there. And wow. I think that... Oddly, a crisis like that ended up moving us forward. And then Nina Paper came on board with this website called Beauty of Letterpress. They've been extremely generous. What um, is the site at Beauty of Letterpress? Letterpress.com. And well, what, they, they may have just. What taken, do they show or what's they on just, it? They showcase different. They showcase different print letterpress printers and print oh, shops but okay. then proceeds for the posters that sold went to the museum so they were very wow. generous with their corporate sponsorship and just helping oh, i mean they're, they're smart because letterpress as a craft is going through this wonderful revival but also an evolution right. you know i think the aesthetic we were talking about aesthetic apparatus before in terms of what they brought to screen printing i think right. the same thing's happening with letterpresses you've got practitioners who are just amazing designers and printers who are then yeah. giving that love to letterpress printing and i think that was what nina did an especially good job showcasing was was good letterpress printing being done and then they uh, proceeds of what sold on this site 
got donated to the museum. So oh, they were great. really generous with us. And yeah. so that's a very long answer for your simple question. That's good, man. I don't even remember what the question was, Bill. Waze Goose. I think it was how Waze. did Waze work? <laughs> yeah, so yeah anyway. man. Yeah. Well, that's great, dude. Well, there there are a number of projects that I know of. Your, well, let's talk about Big Table Studio. Yeah. How did you get introduced? What is Big Table Studio? What was Big Table Studio? Yeah, and, Big ta- yeah go ahead. And how did you get introduced to it? Right. So um, in 2010, I was looking for space in downtown St. Paul, and I was kind of thinking about retail i wanted i had this nice penthouse space in lower town before okay uh, the ballpark was there before a lot of that development was there and it was a sleepy little part of downtown st paul and i loved it but it was there was no elevator going to the space Mm. so i had to take my presses up there by hand which was awful (laughs) and a lot of stairs yeah yeah upstairs just upstairs elevator to the eighth floor but i was on the ninth floor so we had to Jeez. Anything I wanted in my space had to be brought up by hand. I just couldn't afford and, and a crane or something. Printing machines are yeah, not, not, they're not light. Not trivial things. Jeez. So I was looking for uh, something that had more of a storefront space. And I worked sure. with uh, 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 a guy named Joe Spencer, who's the mayor's head of arts and culture. And he was mm-hmm. being really helpful with letting me, you know, showing me spaces that. We thought were compelling and um, that was at the time where the target project was kind of blowing up. And so I decided I had so much going on that I I just couldn't do it. I couldn't bear the thought of having to move all that stuff. So I think it, whether it planted a seed in Joe Spencer's mind, uh, but the idea of a poster or print shop was something they got interested in. They reached out to, they wanted me to do it. I said, I can't do it right now, but maybe talk to Jeff Johnson at, at Replace. Right. And Jeff took the reins. He really helped move that forward. He got them okay. a bunch of good legal help and um, got them a good deal in terms of renting this space right on Wabashaw Street. And right. Pete Fetch, took it over, took it on. He, yeah. he was the guy that ran Big Table from probably 2011 to 2013. And he did a great job. He had co-op members. He yeah. had, um, they were doing openings. We were doing exhibitions. And I think that's where I got introduced to your work, probably. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, yeah, you know, Art Crank was going on at the same time. And so I think sure. a lot of the the vibrancy that Charles got going with Art Crank in terms of the poster and print community coming together, we were all looking sure. for outlets. And I think that, that that timing was really good with Art Crank and a wow. number of the other projects where there was just yeah. this need and this appetite for a place to go and see good printmaking. Sure. So Pete really helped make, make that thing flower, blossom, I should say. Wow. And so... The work for Target settled down for the museum, and I approached Pete at in 2011, and I said, I'd like to, could I be a renter? Could I bring in my gear? And he said, sure. And so 
Um, I had a lot of nice space to work in, and I was yeah. working alongside a lot of really great Twin Cities designers, Nick Zidane, yep. Craig Johnson, Jeff, and and his agency had a huge presence there. His employees right. uh, were, were had a big presence there. Um, Lucas Richards was selling beautiful prints oh, yeah. out of that space, yeah, yeah. and uh, Sam Michaels, who she's now at Studio on Fire. Um, right. But uh, just a wonderful uh, mix of, of people coming through there. Right. And then Pete stepped down in 2013. And um, uh, the city asked me if I wanted to take it over. So I did. And I basically kept the concept going, but we renamed it Hamilton Ing Spot. And so sure. the logic behind the name change was that we kind of wanted to be an outpost for the museum. We wanted to have a little slice of... Hamilton wood type here in the Twin Cities, but it was not just having it be an exclusive Hamilton store, but putting, attaching something of the the brand of Hamilton to where can you go to buy good printed goods. And so we were able to curate a lot of good exhibitions of different Twin Cities printmakers. One of Um, them. Sammy Joe and Tooth did a show for us. Oh, yeah. um, we had um, Jim Sheridan had one. Yeah, Jim Sheridan showed Sheridan's his work there. And, yeah, um, just a wonderful list of printmakers. You guys who showed had their the... stuff there. Amos Kennedy, really good oh. Detroit-based letterpress printer. But then also, wow. um, uh, we showed a collection of Art Crank prints there. We collaborated with Charles yeah, on a, I remember on a that. pop-up show in advance of the 2015. Uh, art crank exhibits so it was this really fertile um time yeah for poster makers poster print makers and sure. being that we had screen printing capabilities in-house and letterpress that attracted a lot of designers printmakers who wanted to be able to have 24 7 access so they had like seats where they could yep, exactly. rent out the so space and seats at the big printer. table and so okay wow. the big table got named for the big table that was in the back and then we renamed it in 2013 and then yeah my collaborator and partner at the time monica edwards larson also a really really good letterpress printer here in yeah. town and designer and teacher she came on board as my partner at the ink spot and we ran it for boy almost three years 14 yeah yeah three almost three years and then um rent got a little bit expensive and Uh. and it it, in order to run it properly it was at least a half-time job to do right by that concept and I already had a job and a half so I'm working for the museum sure. doing freelance here and there and I'm teaching part-time at the U yeah like, man this is busy a lot like work and uh, and they gave us a good deal on rent but the rent went up slowly and so suddenly 2017 comes along and I was paying a lot for rent and I was having to work freelance projects myself to cover the rent and so yeah. suddenly you're taking on other projects to pay for another project that doesn't pay for itself and costs you time. So Brian. I just decided it was time to downscale a little bit. And yeah, so totally. um, uh, Ben Levitz over at Studio on Fire was gracious enough to offer me some some studio space there. Uh, it's no longer a retail space the way 
the ink spot was. Sure. But I'm doing my work for Hamilton out of that space, and we oh, bring students over there, and we have printing events a yeah. couple times a year. So Ben it was very, very generous in terms of giving me a very reasonable rental rate and, and That's exchange great, man. I get to work alongside his incredible and you got your, your printing machines over got there. all my presses and all my types stacked wow. up on That's on a loading dock next to this garage giant garage door and because they just what, recently well i i say recent it was probably a couple of years ago but studio on fire the letterpress shop in town they used to be based in minneapolis off right. Hennepin, and then they right. recently moved yeah not too long ago. Yeah. Ben to, bought that building, this new building. and To St. Paul. Yeah. 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 It's yeah. a beautiful building. Yeah. It's incredible. It's, it's just incredible. Dogwood coffee's in dog, there. Yeah. So. Yeah. Coffee shop. And you can see through Dude. the windows of the coffee shop into the print shop. So yeah. So I think, thought that was a really intuitive and fun decision to be able to, oh, I'm having my double macchiato while I'm watching somebody <laughs> run a... That's amazing. Heidelberg Press. Yeah, right. What could be better than that? How? Well, <laughs> and, and wasn't part of the connection there, Ben Levitt's at Studio on Fire, they, they print a lot of the letterpress, like, cards that yeah. and, and the packages for Dogwood Coffee, right? Yeah, right, right. Dogwood is a client, but Ben's, Ben's got this amazing customer base. They're doing the most beautiful Man. letterpress and foil stamping. And yeah. uh, they're convert they're doing converting, which is, you know, making boxes, making containers. So they're yeah. die cutting and gluing and making these finished packaging for a, an amazing array of clients. And then the calendar, you know, that uh, magnificent yeah, yeah. calendar that comes out every year, which yeah. I understand your work is gracing this it, year. So that's is. exciting. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks, man. April yeah. and October. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it was, it was, yeah, great to be a part of it. Yeah. A contributor. Yeah. yeah, it's an amazing, that's the thing. They're just, they're great little tombs of just, it's tactile things that you, that are little desktop calendars. Yeah. That you can have right on your desk by your computer or wherever. And, uh, yeah. Well, yeah and great. what I like about and admire about Ben and his company's work is they're curating good design, right? And they're, sure keeping this craft going and they too like like i was saying before they're evolving letterpress in many ways they're taking it or right, what else can we do with this what what does letterpress printing look like in 2017 and they're they're yeah. defining that as they go and it's really a joy to watch his his people work every day i'm standing in the same space Man. as his staff and i look at the stuff they're printing and I'm blown away, you know, it's really? just, it's just great to see stuff coming off these presses and, uh, I'm just very inspired. And so I have to yeah. give a shout out to Ben for offering me a space in his shop and oh, for sure. a place to keep the work of Hamilton going. Cause it's like my yeah. office and, but it's also my print shop and I'm lucky enough to right. rent from him. So feeling good about that. What type of projects do you work on currently at the um, shop, Bill? My big focus is uh, uh, merchandise for the museum. So we're working for on um, okay. a series of posters that'll go out to various universities around the country um, okay. where we're trying to get universities to bring students to the museum for a two, three, four-day workshop. And so, you know, 
if you're a letterpress or graphic design instructor, we want to put marketing tools in those people's hands so that they're thinking about, all right, how do we bring people to a place like Hamilton? Because nothing else exists like it, quite like it in the country. Yeah. It's a million and a half pieces of type. It's all Jeez. of this great history, printing history. And yeah, um, it's, it's just an experience you can't get anywhere else. So my job is yeah. to both with the website and with um, with print collateral, get people excited about coming to the museum. And speaking of web, we're in the process or in the final stages of finishing up a redesign of the website. So very excited okay. about that. And so you're trying to think about what's the aesthetic of the website? How does that compare to the aesthetic of the letterpress printed work that you're doing that accompanies it? Sure. And it, the funny thing for me is... Well, what's the official font of a printing of a wood type museum, right? I mean, it's a sure. daunting question, and so we yeah. have defaults. But you're always thinking, well, how do you celebrate the diversity of the beautiful shapes you've got in the collection? So it's yeah, it's let's just say it's a very open ended corporate identity. Okay, <laughs> you know, you gotta. Well, yeah. I have this today. So anyway, the the in addition to you know printing materials for for the museum yeah. uh, we're also working with type designers to make new wood type and so um mm. uh, so we have these wonderful collaborations with type designers from around the world and we um we cut in their designs and with new make new wood type from these these original or these new designs Jeez. and so um my job in addition to printing material there i'm also cutting type with laser vendors and CNC router vendors and, okay. and and then I'm proofing it. So you you check the type, you test the type, and then yeah. you're checking to make sure it, it's it's doing the job it needs to. So sometimes, most of the time, we make the type Jeez. at the museum, but other times we we use other other methods for cutting type. But okay. mostly we're making the templates with a variety of vendors and then we ship the templates to the museum and then they cut the finished type on the, on the pantograph on the oh. machine that J E Hamilton. What is purchased. the pantograph? The pantograph I've, I've is a tracing it. machine. It's uh, essentially oh. you've got a big letter M on yeah. your right and you've got a stylus and you trace the perimeter of it. And then there's an armature in front of you. And on the left side, there's a high speed router that cuts the type from the tra the pattern that you're tracing. Oh, and wow. the pantograph is the name of this armature and what it lets you do is shrink it. So you've got these you start oh. off with a with you know we measure type in picas. So mm -hmm. you've got type that's tw the finished type is going to be 12 picas tall. You usually have a 3 to 1 ratio. So it's 36 pica template that you trace to make a smaller piece of type. Okay. And it gives you the machine. It's a very old machine. Hamilton didn't invent it, but yeah. um, it's been used to make wood type since the early 1800s. Anyway, That's amazing. so it's this great machine and it's fast and you can yeah. do your cutting really fast and then you do the finished trimming. And so for us, for me in particular, I'm deciding, all right, when is it appropriate to use new tools for certain parts of the type making process? And when does it make sense to let the people who work at the museum, who have all this accumulated experience, yeah. cut the type? So we're lucky in that, um, 
we had a retiree, a guy named Norbert Brilski. I think Norbert's probably 93 years old. And he retired from Hamilton, and he was type cutter and did preparation of wood okay. for wood type. His daughter, who's, who's, who's uh, my age, uh, she is... Um, she learned from her dad, and now she cuts type for us. So we've got a second generation ah. of type cutting going on in the museum. And her daughter also has cut type for us and, you know, has gotten very interested in design and typography. So um, we're deciding, one of my jobs here in the Twin Cities is deciding when is it appropriate to enlist all that the museum has to offer in terms of making new wood type and when is it appropriate to hire a cnc vendor who can do details that maybe you can't get with a pantograph and so it's kind of judging all those different techniques so yeah do you feel like some old uh timers are bitter of technology and in particular with the cnc routers compared to like doing it by hand kind of with the pantographs or or do you or do you not feel that way well, in some ways, it's it was probably something like when letterpress gave way to offset printing. You're looking at this yeah. new technology coming in. And this is 1940s, 1950s. Right. So, yeah, there's a certain amount of transition that takes place. Um, but the number of people who could still cut type in 2009, 2010 was such a small, it wasn't like you were putting leagues of people out of business by doing it. You know? right. So there's absolutely nostalgia for the methodologies. And we look at the type that was made in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, and the craftsmanship they had was astounding. I mean, the detail that yeah. they were able to get with the beauty of these decorative faces. Sure. There's nobody or very few people living right now who could create new and original designs without the help of newer machines. And so right. the number of people who are shaking their fists at CNC router operators <laughs> are pretty s- small, you know, but it's very right. funny because when right. you, one thing that's cool is being able to look at templates cut with a CNC router versus templates cut by Hamilton in the early 20th century, they had so many things figured out in terms of problem solving, in terms of speed and motion, and how do we get the most work out of these templates and these machines. It, you, you, when you start doing those things side by side, the analog and the digital, mm-hmm. the digital starts, to, the analog starts to inform the digital process because you look at it and you go, mm. oh, they put te- template on each side of this block of wood. Oh, they could do a two color template on a single block of wood. And so you're learning all the, and you'd have to make one yourself in order to know the problems that they solved. And so I'm sitting here trying to solve technological problems, type design and type manufacturing problems with 21st century tools. And then you look back at the 19th century solution and you go, oh, wow, they were good at this. Okay, well, (laughs) here are the things that we can emulate or be inspired by. So we're trying to, totally, you know, take what they knew, that knowledge and and, uh, preserve it and reuse it and make new type that people can make new work with. That's the real joy about working at a printing museum is you're you're making stuff that lets other people make stuff so it might be the presses it might be the type it might be 
hand-mixed inks, but you're, you're fostering this creative community, whether you're a graphic designer or a book binder yeah. or a letterpress printer, we're trying to foster that making experience at the museum. So lucky me. There is a, there's a project that you worked on personally called Letterbugs. Yeah, Letterbugs, right. What is it and and how'd that come about? Um, I was working on a poster for the St. Paul Art Crawl. Oh. And Art That Crawls, you know, it kind of had a lot of bad ideas about what to do for it. (laughs) And like a baby with a beret. And a goatee, that seemed like a really obvious one. And I quickly rejected that. And I was walking my dog, and I think I saw a spider on the ground. And I thought, art crawl, bugs. Yeah, I could do bugs made of typography, right? So there is a an image or an illustration side. Doing, doing illustration with typography is not new by any stretch. It goes back a long, long way. Sure. But I had a lot of ornamental type in the collection, these really unusual shapes, especially swash characters that were absolutely perfect for bug legs. And then a lot of wood type that had been in my family's collection going way back. And so I did did my first letter bug, I think, in 1999. And then I did some cards using that idea and um, more posters and fine art prints. Sure. And then got invited got invited to a museum in Italy uh, to do an ex- exhibition there, doing workshops there. And then the Gutenberg Museum in Germany invited me to do a workshop, and they acquired a bunch of the prints for their permanent collection. Man. And then in 2014, uh, the Haley Gallery down in Nashville which is connected to the Country Music Hall of Fame. Okay. Uh, they, they, through the help of Jim Sheradden, got wind of my work, and, and they commissioned, I shouldn't say commissioned me, they, they asked me to exhibit, do a solo exhibition of these bugs. Oh, so man. I created a, a bunch of new work for that in 2013 and 2014 for a big exhibition down there. And then... Sure. Um, and then... It was just kind of taken off. It was something that you know you. I, I I don't know if you have this, but you 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 tend to be a little wary about going to this back to the same bag of tricks, right? Oh, I can make sure. another letter bug, but for me, it seems like it's a an evergreen idea. You can there are so many different iterations that you can explore. Big bugs that are like more scientifically accurate. They look like an actual dragonfly and then more stylized things that are more whimsical. But I love that. um, I love that range of looking at a lifelike insect like a, a, a cicada and then trying to make a cicada out of wood and lead type that's a fun challenge and then yeah then you start with from scratch with this letter d would be perfect for something i'm gonna see what comes out of that and it's nice to approach it from a variety of levels so yeah yeah it's just it's an idea that won't die and so i've got a manuscript <laughs> a children's book manuscript that's been turned down by some very good publishers <laughs> so I need to illustrate that baby. I need to get I need to get that work out there and um, yeah. so I worked on some of the illustrations for it last year. 
I had a sabbatical in Italy over at Tipoteca Italiana. It was this really great printing museum just north of Venice. And I was there for two weeks working on illustrations for the for the book. No and way. That was great fun. So I'm I'm feeling that You're still working still, on the book? Yeah, oh yeah. It's it's Whoa. it's been finished for a long time. The manuscript is in good shape, but the illustrations they're just taking forever and I keep finding totally. other things to distract me, like paying work. You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so it'll it'll happen. Yeah. It'll happen. But it's a really great um motif you know it's a it's a concept that i really like and i yeah i haven't touched the bottom of the pool yet i I haven't hit i don't feel like there's i feel like there's a lot more to explore with that as a concept yeah yeah they're they're very like layer heavy how how many different prints or layers do you feel like you do on some i'm sure they vary very typical to do five or six or seven layers of ink oh wow um and then the additions are relatively small, 40 to 50 prints usually. Wow. And, and what But press? they're so labor intensive. So I do them on my Vandercook 219. I've got a nice old Vandercook press and it's a big flatbed press. And you, you can actually put the poster down and hand ink the type and set it down on the surface of the print and print. Okay. The more conventional way is to put the type on the press bed and roll the poster over the top. Sure. But you can get these really nice nuanced tilts and placements with hand placing the type in place. So wow. you're printing upside down essentially. Right. And that's a that's a really fun technique, but it takes forever. So <laughs> um but I like it. It's it's a great way to work and yeah. and um but yeah, lots of layers and then working with translucent inks and transparent inks and metallic inks. And then uh, the, my dirty little secret is I'm red green colorblind. Oh, really? So I um wow. I can see reds and greens. Yeah. But I don't have the sensitivity, like sometimes purples and blues are hard to tell apart, or greens and browns are hard to tell apart. Mm -hmm. But I have this, I have these palettes that I like to work with, and I know how to work with those palettes, and I know how to apply the ink in different coverages, and I have a bag of tricks that is uh, deep. So even though I don't always explore certain palettes, I... I, I'm limited in some ways. It's a, it was a very important thing to say, screw that. I'm going to overcome it. I, I need to make prints anyway. And so that was a good, that was a yeah. good thing to say, who cares? Just keep printing, you know? Yeah, totally. It's good to be able to ignore what could potentially be a limitation and just say, screw it. I'm going to keep printing. So, yeah. Isn't there, there's an analogy bill of, uh, I I don't remember the band. I think it was Black Sabbath. It was one of I heard a story of one of like the bassists or one of the guitarists. I think it was a bassist. He ended up like getting his finger like it, like cut off at like a machine shop or uh-huh. something because he would work there, and he ended up getting like a replacement, kind of like a rubber like appendage, mm-hmm. so he would still be able to use play the guitar on uh-huh. the fretboard. I'm assuming if he was right handed, it would have been his left, left hand. Wow. Yeah. But like, and don't quote me, I don't know if it was Black Sabbath or not, but it was some heavy metal band where like it made a different sound, Mm. like because of this Mm. like little rubberized kind of apparatus that he would use for his like ring finger or whatever one it was. And it almost made the sound even more 
you know, doom, yeah. doom like, or yeah. like, just like <laughs> it, it kind of like made it. So that was kind of like, I like that idea of it just like, uh, seemingly, uh, a misfortune turning into actually yeah. something that, uh, sonically kind of made the art even perhaps right. better. Well, know? and that's Django Reinhardt too, right? His gypsy guitar player from the oh. 1930s and 40s, just this genius virtuoso uh, picking style. And he had sure. his hand get hurt in a fire when he was a kid. And he only played with two or three fingers on his left hand. But what he was able to achieve... Man. With this limitation, he—I mean—he was just so good that the, the it, you know, it it didn't uh, didn't stop him. And and I'm not yeah. comparing myself to Django Reinhardt because <laughs> if you only have two fingers and you're trying to play a guitar with your left hand, being red green colorblind is a lot smaller of a limitation. But anyway, sure. it's it's fun to. Yeah. persevere you know yeah absolutely see what comes of that so yeah maybe i should be like the bass player from <laughs> the band and just only work in reds and greens <laughs> you know go for going forward just limit myself to colors i can't see <laughs> there you go That'd be a mind bender oh man well what's next for you man um let's see um you know teaching is is the thing that keeps me really fresh. So I, I teach typography at the University of Minnesota. Okay. Have been for a long time. Is it like, what is the course title? Is, is it like intermediate or advanced? It's type, or? type one. I absolutely oh. love getting the college students yeah. walking in the door and never had to do a type assignment before. Sure. That's my idea of a good time. Interesting. And so that, I've been doing that for quite a few years now. Uh, that's at that, the U of M. That's at the U of M. I taught okay. at MCAD for a while, taught at CVA for a while, taught oh, yeah. at Stout. But wow. now I'm kind of fixed at the U and I really like it over there. In addition yeah. to that, um, I teach a, a, a course about the history of the alphabet. So oh. this class called Travels in Typography. It's a how the alphabet came to be. And, wow. you know, we go, they've got the most beautiful artifacts there. They've got cuneiform tablets. They've got, um, they've got Egyptian papyri. They've got medieval manuscripts. And we get to look at all this stuff and see how the letter A changed over time and then how that wow. became typography. So it's a really cool history class. And I teach that one night a week. And, um, the the college students are what keeps things really fresh. They're always mm. asking good questions. Yeah. And I over the years I've really had the great pleasure of hiring my students, you know. Oh, nice. So man, probably a half a dozen people who've worked for me since the nineteen nineties are sure. former students. Sure. So I'm very lucky that way because you can just get to meet smart, funny people and yeah. talented people and just feel very fortunate. So Keeping being a good student, right? That's what they teach you is to be a good student. Uh, so that's, I guess, that's what's ahead. Nothing, nothing big and perfect project wise on the horizon, but keeping yeah. doing what I'm doing is, is a lot of fun and, and staying in touch with people, young people with good ideas like yourself hey. to, uh, <laughs> to just keep things moving. Yeah, man. Nice. Well, I think that's good, dude. All right. Thanks for hanging out.
Alright! Yes, yes, yes! What'd you guys think? That was fun, huh? Did you have fun hanging out with us? I know I did. I know I did. And you better. You fucking better have. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry for swearing. Uh, you guys, thanks to our buddy Bill Moran, man. Bill Moran, right? Uh, visit his website, right? And uh, that's, that's just woodtype.org. That's Hamilton Woodtype Museum uh, in Wisconsin, right? That's their website, so woodtype.org so check that out got the link in the show notes you can click it and uh yeah yeah bill great guy man thanks for hanging out dude uh all right what else credits and shit tangents you guys you can stream this shit on soundcloud and you can subscribe on itunes or the apple podcasts apple podcast if you have an apple phone uh can you listen to it if you if you have an android i don't to be honest, I don't even really fucking know. I don't have an Android. Uh, let me know. Uh, yeah, send me an email. Let me know if you can still hear it. Or or just listen to it on, on, on SoundCloud, right? You could do that. Why not? Uh, there's two options for you. I'm sure there maybe are more. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, check it out. Check it out there, too, right? Uh, th- theme music, you guys. Yet again, our old buddy Yasuki Satsumi from the freemusicarchive.org. Thank you, Yasuki, for your talent and expertise. And the fun, jivey interlude music by our old buddy, yet again, Sheridan Fox. Visit his site at sheridanfox.bandcamp.com. That is it. That is a party. Another one in the can. Hopefully, uh, doing a lot more of these, alright? Just kind of get, once I get my shit together, once I stop lollygagging around and, uh, you know, yeah, then we'll, then we'll take over the fucking world, right? A lot of swearing in this episode, a lot of swearing. Sorry about that, Mom. Uh, yeah, anyway, alright, uh, you guys, thanks for hanging out. Love seeing you. Alright, we'll, uh, we'll see you down the road. <laughs>